0: The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee.
1: And me, Sean Kane.
0: This week, we talk to the writer Ben Aronovich about his latest book in the best selling Rivers of London series. Later in the show, we'll be talking about the long awaited third instalment in Hilary Mantel's Cromwell trilogy, The Mirror and the Light. Ben Aronovich began his career in screenwriting, writing for TV juggernauts like Casualty and Doctor Who. His fiction is cut from something of the same cloth with his best-selling Rivers of London series following the adventures of a young officer in the Metropolitan Police who meets a ghost and winds up working for The Folly, a secret branch of the Met that handles the supernatural. When he came to the studio to talk to Sean about the eighth book in the series, False Value, she began by asking him about London and the vital role the city plays in his fiction. I'm a Londoner yeah, and so therefore my relationship of London
2: is that I'm a Londoner. That's that's my relationship with London and if you're a Londoner, London you have a different relationship with London than people who have come into London. People who come into London for whatever reason like yourself have come in for excitement or work or or desperation or that London is a kind of a, a screen upon which they project their fears and their hopes and but if you're a Londoner, it's where you you went to school. Mm. It's where you, go, you know, you went to cinema. Your your first nursery, your first film. Your, I mean, I remember going to see Robin Hood, the the the, um, the Disney Robin Hood down. That was like my first West End proper West End film. I went going down with my parents, and there were buskers and, and and all that kind of stuff. Is is basically kind of like you for a Londoner. London is their small town. Mm. It's just a very big.
1: Small town. Uh, I mean, well, like I mean, Rivers of London was a massive bestseller. I mean, it's it, and it sold really well all over the world. Um, and uh, now we're, we're sort of we're on book eight of these series, and they they follow Peter Grant, who uh, is sort of uh, he's uh, seconded to the le- the last officially sanctioned English wizard, um, who is uh, working for the British wizard for he's working for the Metropolitan Police, uh, Thomas Nightingale, um, who is. Uh, one of my favourite book
2: characters. Um,
1: And and they're so fun. And I just sort of, I was wondering about how you came up with this.
2: I, well, I mean, there's a flippant answer to that. I was desperate. (laughs) Um, I need money. I was going bankrupt. And I was working at Waterstones running the crime in the science fiction section. So, uh, I used to make this joke, which no one gets anymore, which is, well, why take two genres into the shower, you see? But you have to be over 40 to find that funny. Um, but somebody's laughing, I guarantee, <laughs> listening to this has found that funny, at least yeah. one person. Um, I So I, just, I was looking around in ideas that I had rummaging around in my head for various story ideas, and one popped out and it was called Magic Cops. Mm. And it was a television idea I had, which is basically, you know, what it says on the tin. It was going to be mag- magic cops that, cops that did magic. <laughs> and I quite like the idea of, um, of kind of working class magic. The idea of people who kind of turn up and go, Oh, God, not enough of bullrog, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always thought of it. I always thought of it as Gandalf. What happens if Gandalf joins the Sweeney? He's just nuts.
1: really jaded.
2: <laughs> well, you know, just like it's the day of work. It's yeah. Like, you know, and, and then. I I started adapting it because prose is a different medium from television. Mm,
1: that um, you were writing for for, um, for Doctor Who? Oh uh, yeah, television. back in the day, mm. but
2: before it was fashionable. <laughs> and, um, I, uh, and I and I kind of like d- adapted it, and then just one day Peter Grant walked into my head, mm. and I wrote the first five pages, and I just knew that it was I had something hot, mm. and it was just a question of sitting down and then writing you know, the full 96,000 words. Yeah. And then I would be able to... I knew I was going to be able to sell it to an agent and a publisher. I didn't know it was going to be so successful. (laughs) I thought it was going to be, you know, a good solid mid-list... Fantasy book, that's what I thought.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that, like, I think there's a good measure for fantasy novelists when, you know, you've sort of, inverted commas, made it. Uh, when someone online has made a wiki uh, website for your books and there's now the Follypedia, which is... Uh, yes,
2: but you do know there's, like, a Jane Austenpedia as well. Uh, yeah, well, and, uh, <laughs> she, she's pretty famous
1: too, you know. <laughs> she kind of made it. not just
2: fantasy writing. <laughs> no,
1: <just like laughs> no, but I think, like, when you've got fans who are willing to sort of extensively uh, sort of map and document... Uh, you know, the histories of characters and stuff like that. Um, well,
2: the thing we found about the books is they don't sell to the audience we thought they were going to sell. So we thought it was going to sell exclusively to that audience. but mm. No, it's a very general audience that's spread. When I go on tour, I'm meeting people from all over.
1: Are, are you surprised by, uh, say, like people like myself who may have never been to London or uh, not from the UK who love these books and love the the setting so much?
2: Well, given that even Scottish people like them. <laughs> they must know, be alright. <laughs> they must they must have a wider <laughs> appeal. Given that, you know, London is the great Satan in the cosmology of Scotland. So um I yeah, so no, not really. I like books about foreign places. Mm. So I completely understand there's nothing quite like getting a good crime story set in a foreign country mm. because you think you're like you're learning something and there's a horrible murder. <laughs> you know, what could be better?
1: And I was wondering how you go about building a world like this when just by the very nature of fantasy you kind of have access to all the toys you could possibly want um that you are setting your own limitations about you know what is logical and what is isn't in your own universe
2: well i mean part of it's like i have my personal preference for what i think i want in my fantasy world so that creates a kind of one level of 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 restrictions, So, mm. you know, I like certain things. So you're going you like to get maps? those things. Yeah, I like maps. I like logical, magical systems, but I also like whimsy. Mm. So I wanted a system, basically, a sort of background where I could have both. Yeah. So whereas the kind of magic that Peter and Nightingale do is is very formalistic. I mean, in, it, codified by an Isaac Newton. So, you know, it's that kind of a magic where it's like lots of... Rules and stuff like that, and there are the limit. You know, I have very strict limitations. We we actually follow the the law of thermodynamics. So you can't create things out of nothing. You can't, and you can't abolish things Mm. because the because the energy constraints. And then I have my, my Rivers and my Faye who could do extraordinary things out of whimsy so that I can have a bit of sort of stardust magic, so sort of like, <laughs> like pixie dust magic that can be sprinkled over things. And and so I, I basically just aim to have my cake and eat it. Yeah. That's what I have. So I can have both. I go, what do I want? And then I just strive towards making it. I make... My, I make sp- quite a lot of it up as i go along really as needed when i finish the story the story is the most important thing mm. you then build the you build the story and you build the kind of world around the story
1: I mean, well, yeah, you mentioned uh, people working in a world that isn't ours, and this London is very recognisable. I think for either people living in this moment right now, um, but also people uh, living in, in the UK or even really any major city. Um, and uh, could you just sort of talk a bit um, about the some of the topics you're talking about in, in this eighth instalment? Just because, um, particularly the uh, uh, Terence Skinner, our uh, our Silicon Valley. Uh, tech bro who's our sort of our big villain um can you sort of can you talk a little bit I'm not sure he's the villain <laughs> I, I, I don't want to spoil I, anything I, for anyone
2: I, I, I didn't think of him as the villain <laughs> misunderstood <that's> Terrence Skinner <laughs> I yeah well I I don't really think of like i um, in terms of issues mm. I just think oh I need this story and I thought and uh, often the stories start with either a, a story idea or they start with an area that I want to look at or they start with just a vague scene that I want to put in <laughs> Really? Sometime. Yeah I've started books or I have a title mm-hmm. the second book is called Moon Over Soho and I just had the title mm. I had no idea why I was in Soho and then I thought well it's got to do with jazz you see and then you build up so Moon Over Soho is a good example I had the title which comes from uh, the Threepenny Opera it's one of the tracks of the Threepenny Opera mm-hmm. and and I thought, well, okay, it's in Soho, and I don't want to do werewolves. So what else happens in Soho? <laughs> and I thought jazz, jazz happens in Soho, and of course I had Peter's dad's background. Mm. So I thought, right, this is my chance to look at Peter's dad's background and his relationship with his father, uh, and and with jazz, I I wanted a story, do a story where you have a murder in the, the most expensive bit of real estate in London and that was The Hanging Tree mm. because you start in number one Hyde Park which is the most pointless piece of architecture <laughs> has ever been built in this country whatsoever.
1: There's other authors that have used, I'm thinking like particularly perhaps, I mean there's there's China Mayville and there's also uh, Neil Gaiman um, who have used London as a setting for uh, of London equivalents like settings for um, fantasy books um, and uh, reading this book I was thinking about um, Neverwhere a little bit, just because of that, uh, the way he uses location and then um, embodies them in a person, so like, that Angel Islington, for example, in Neverwhere. I read an interview with him and he was saying that it actually, uh, it was a, the sequel was born of anger in terms of how uh, certain things that had changed about London um, since he wrote Neverwhere. And uh, do you feel angry at all about some things and yeah. how they operate in London? Yeah. Like, I, does it feed I, into I, your writing?
2: Uh, my anger is more... I don't know. London is a huge city. It's always been a, a bit of a mess. Mm. It's never been a coherent city, um, and Londoners have never allowed the the establishment to really get control. I think the, we we're really at the point where, I think a couple of points in the nineteenth century, and now we're at the point where where the, the gentry have made a concerted effort to seize control of London mm. and take it away from the people that live there. Uh, but it never really lasts for long, and I, I feel we'll have some more riots and drive them out sooner or later. Really? Um, there, that Yeah, you, you see, can see that from the concerted waves of efforts to try and drive the working class out of London. You got got things like, for example, Charing Cross Road was built to demolish Saint Giles, Saint Giles Rookery. They, these people were not. These people were not rehoused nor were the people who were driven out by the building of the metropolitan line none of these people were ever compensated or rehoused they were just driven out and then we got slightly more humane in the in the 1920s and 30s and 40s when we started shifting people out of out of london into the new towns and stuff like that and the 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 bedroom tax is a particularly mean spirited drive to drive poor londoners out of london Hmm. Um and I don't think anyone's kind of thinking to themselves and rubbing their hands in a kind of Victorian villain's glee going aha we shall drive the poor out of London <laughs> but you know they don't care yeah and what the problem for London is is that the rest of the country is London is used as a scapegoat for the rest of the country so you you go around the rest of the country and go oh London 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 but actually the establishment doesn't care about London It always makes you—you—you got a little taste of that when Extinction Rebellion tried to do a thing on the train. Yes. When they try to superglue themselves to a commuter train? Yes. As if the people on the commuter train were the, the people who were getting in the way of environmental change.
1: And also using public transport, which yes. is really something everyone should be encouraged to do. I
2: mean, if you're listening to me, Extinction Rebellion, go out to those villages around London, where all the rich and influential people live, and superglue yourself to the SUVs. That would be a much more
0: appropriate.
1: <laughs> I mean, with things like, things like this, say, like... Uh, Extinction Rebellion or um, things like Brexit, uh, you know, do you ever consider putting these problems that are very much on the in our minds, in our London, in your, your fiction? No, I,
2: I, I don't do what's known as fantastic racism or fantastic. I, 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 <laughs> what I, I was not going to do is like do this refugee stories by focusing on elves or something who've mm. been thrown out of fairyland. If I do those stories, I will do them by having refugees from Syria if yeah. I was to do that. Um, but I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't sit down and and aim to do it. I don't think. I don't think it's my place to do that. Right. I think there are plenty of people with their own stories who actually have lived those experiences who should be given space to express them. I don't think it's my place to to to, to write into the experiences. I to reflect it. Yes, because it is part of London. Mm. So to reflect it in the same way I reflect the other parts of London, other good and bad bits of London, and, and to ex- reflect the experiences of of the mad diversity of the city. Yes. But I don't think it's my place to be going, oh, look, I shall make it so that magic becomes, I don't know, an analogy for, for drug addiction or something.
1: What you were saying about reflecting the, the diversity of London, that's one of the wonderful things. So one, one of many wonderful things about these books is that how very... Uh, True to form, when I did finally arrive in London, uh, the London I saw on the page is very much one that I could uh, recognise, and 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 particularly with Peter, and Peter is mixed race, um, he's working class, um, and his mother's she's from Sierra, 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 Sierra Leone, yeah, yes. yeah, and you have said quite a lot about this um, before, but uh, you know talking about how. Uh, say like US publishers have handled Peter um in terms of how his well
2: funny it's the covers. It's the visual representation. They 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 wasn't well, so much right was just bugger it up. Yeah. And and it was one of those things I what I I know what happened. I found out what happened is basically um uh, in publishing, especially when you're a first author, there's a limited budget for the cover. Mm. So what what happened was they went out to find a mixed race actor to shoot a picture of holding a gun cuz they're Americans and you can't have a thriller cover without someone holding a gun. <laughs> and they went and got someone who look see because he he's not a villain. Mm. There's only two main um, two main black stereotypes in America f- who aren't villains and that's the the big hulking guy who's on your side and and the skinny Chattermouth yeah, was yeah. on your side, and they went out and got a big hulking guy with no neck, and they they, they shot him, and then it just looked really stupid. They <laughs> didn't look. And, like and me then that was, and then just to compound it, they, they decided to black out him completely, which just was just I don't even know why they did that, and there was no more money for another cover, <laughs> mm. so I I just said that's terrible cover, but there's nothing you can do when you're first starting out as an author. You yeah. don't get any say. In, especially in America if you're a British author, mm. in what the covers look like.
1: You've been admirably vocal about publishing and uh, how publishing handles uh, diversity and... Um, badly. Uh, badly. Uh, and uh, <laughs> particularly, I'm thinking back... Uh, and the
2: media in general. As a Londoner, right, it's very striking when you go into these national institutions like publishing and the BBC and, and, the, and the media and the press, right? You go in and how white they are mm. compared to London. Yeah. Yeah. Because you go to a mixed school, you go live in a mixed area, you have lots of mixed friends, and you go into these, suddenly you walk into the BBC, and the only black people, well, this is 1988 when I first walked into the BBC, it might have changed a bit. The only black people are the people working in the canteen and on the door. And literally, that is what you do. And in publishing, it's it's the same. It's all people from, from Hastings <laughs> and, I don't know, places outside the M25. And they're lovely people, but they're, they're not the most diverse group. No.
1: Do you think there's anything? I mean, there's uh, sometimes a lot of publishers have started bringing in things like sensitivity readers and stuff like that. I mean, how do you feel about th- th- those sorts of things? Do you think I, I think it I
2: think I think well, I think they they're, they're going to have to throw stuff at a wall until some of it works. <laughs> yeah. Basically, sensitivity readers. I think they should be uh, offered mm-hmm. to authors. Yeah if you want them. I think there's no, nothing, does never hurts if you're doing a subject that you're not actually intimately in, in, uh, acquainted with yourself, to have someone who is read it for you. What you don't want is a kind of checklist mm. because that doesn't matter. And the thing is is we can deal with this problem very simply. We just have more non-white people writing books and then we don't have to have to worry about this. Well, that's what again. I always
1: feel about sensitivity readers. It's like, why don't you hire those people to work at the publisher all the time? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, this is very tangentially involved, but I I just, I I found it interesting. Um, I actually, it took me a very long time to realise that uh, your brother is David (laughs) Aranovich. Really? (laughs) Even though you got the same last name and you don't look too dissimilar. Yeah,
2: yes. Um, Most people think I'm him half the time. He still gets tweets from people congratulating one of the books that he's writing, so... (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I was uh, I was reading an interview with him about uh, Party Animals, which is a sort of book about your family. Yes, right? lovely book. Yeah. Well, I so I read this uh, interview with him and he was saying that he had not shown you the book and it was sort of at the stage, you know, he was doing interviews for it, so it was quite a late stage. I um, mean, he said, you can interpret it quite aggressively, um, which is that this is my attempt to take their parents away from my siblings. But I didn't want to invite a problem that didn't exist, and I thought that was really interesting in a family where you'd have multiple authors about whether they're you know, what is the line between it, you as no, an no, author and see, as a brother?
2: This, this is this is this is a non fiction thing, right? Yeah, this idea that he could take my parents away from me, by <laughs> yeah, writing a yeah. book about it.
1: <laughs> what is this a pretension of nonfiction, right? Yeah, this is like
2: <laughs> you can't take your he can't take my parents away. I mean, I, I, it, I don't think it. I, it, I just don't even understand the concept of what, you know, it's a sort of very it's a very Sunday supplement thing. Kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like my parents were taken away by this statement. No, I, I was great because I I mean, I only appear in it as a two-year-old. Mm. So I come up completely unscathed personally, <laughs> right? But it was fascinating it yeah. was about like, all the background stuff about my father that I didn't know and about my mother. I mean, I knew some of it, but I missed a lot of the, the, the relatives. I missed a lot of the very intense party stuff because by the time I was around it wasn't so much they were drifting away from the party but the party was mellowing out is it the party we're talking
1: about is the communist party (laughs) yes sorry yes when you're
2: from a family like mine there is only the party the party (laughs) and and people are either in the party or they're not in the party
1: oh that's so interesting then, because I was wondering whether there were any lines between how say Ben the author uh, would react to a, a book about his own family or Ben, the brother, because he he seemed a little bit worried at that point. Well, that yeah, because he
2: is because he got a lot of stick from from his, my mum's friends mm. and my dad's friends. They got a lot of stick. It's, it's a bit like religion. They, you know, my mum had had communism the same way other people have religion. Mm. It was a set of rules. You did this was bad. That was good. You know, good people did this, good people believed that, bad people believed this. My mum was very, very forthright (laughs) about the use of uh, violence to overthrow capitalism. She was very disappointed, I think, in the Communist Party when it drifted into kind of political...
1: the the gentler end the
2: gentler end i I don't know sometimes you see it was very hard to tell with my mum to her dying day she claimed not to know the meaning of the word sarcasm but we think she might have been sarcastic when she was saying it but we never caught her out
1: (laughs) so i have to then ask i mean now we're at the you know we've got book eight now um and uh, where do you go from here in terms of Peter I mean like I, I don't want to spoil it in terms of where it's all left off and there's a lot for it's you know, to, to open end you know we're definitely getting a book nine I'm guessing ten, uh-huh. um, And you're going to go up for ten contracted. or twelve contracted contracted <laughs> yes <laughs> so do you have your you were mentioning that you go from title first to, to perhaps no, some no, sometimes. Or sometimes sometimes or a location
2: sometimes an idea well I
1: was actually wondering about locations where, where else in London and we? well the, uh, the
2: next one the next one I was going to do was going to be Golders Green and canals. I don't know mm. why, mm. but for some reason, it's veered off. Uh, at least part of it has veered off to Manchester, which caught me by oh. surprise. Yeah, so I would, oh okay, um, but it's probably seventies Manchester. So I'm not sure Great. I'll have to do that much research because Manchester's changed quite a bit. Um, and the next one after that is Aberdeen.
1: Possibly the most exciting news of uh, my year is um, that you are adapting Rivers of London with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. And uh, when I found out about that, I was like, yes, they're sufficiently nerdy enough to do a good job.
2: Oh, very, very nerdy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it was like a warm bath. I just go like, after, after dealing with other television companies and they, they, they don't really understand what you're talking about, yeah. I just sat down with Nick Frost and we just nerded out for about 15 oh. 50, 50 minutes. Um, yeah, they're mad. Uh, they've hired equally mad people, so I fit in. You're pretty excited? Perfectly well, yes. Nerdy mad people. <laughs> it's, it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be very difficult to finance. So it's still, it's still uncertain as to
0: whether it will actually happen, but we're going to give it a good shot. That was Ben Aronovich. False Value is published by Galantz. After the break, we'll be heading back to the 16th century and the woman of the moment, Hilary Mantel. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Hilary Mantel may have had plenty of time to brace herself for success, as she quipped in The Guardian last year, but what a success it is. After eight long years, Mantel is back with the final part of her Cromwell trilogy, The Mirror and the Light. Fans gave her the Harry Potter treatment, queuing at midnight to get hold of her latest 900-page literary blockbuster. So, Sean, what's it like?
1: Oh, it's really, really good. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sort of one of those people that has been waiting for eight years uh, between uh, Bring Up the Bodies and, and this.
0: Yeah, only um, a couple.
1: Yeah, only a couple, basically. <laughs> I only I only. Uh, it was one of those books I really vividly remember when Wolf Hall came out, and um I was working in a bookshop then, and we got an advanced reading copy of, of it. And I know the bookseller that still has the copy of that proof, like she holds onto it like such like an the achievement. Precious. I knew this was good before <laughs> everyone else knew it was good. Um, and so, uh, but then it it, it it sold huge amounts. And so I never really read it because it wasn't anything I ever really had to recommend to people. I sort of stuck to it. because they came in asking they for it, they just would want it, yeah. you know. Um, and I always sort of viewed it as something kind of a amazing and very daunting in that it was quite a hefty book and I knew it was historical fiction which I didn't really read much of at the time um and the fact that so many people came in for it though made me think like oh this is quite strange like this is almost what you would expect for a commercial novel and this is very much not sort of a uh, you know a thriller a commercial thriller or something but it it's so amazing now having read the most of the third that there's this really um you really notice that um When you think about to like sort of great reading experiences that you've had, usually you can sort of lump them into different categories and you can say, well, I really enjoyed this book because um, it is a, a compulsive read. And then I really enjoyed this book because of the skill that is shown in this book because you know the the writing is beautiful um, and uh, I enjoyed it simply for the quality and skill shown. Yeah, the prose. Yeah mm-hmm. um, and then when you get a book like this where it's both at the same time uh, it's, it's kind of amazing to have a reading experience when you're constantly where while while you're reading how much you're enjoying yourself <laughs>
0: yeah, and not only that but also you're part of this massive kind of phenomenon there's people yes. all over the country having the same reading experience yes
1: and I, I don't know what it was like for people I guess it wouldn't have been this the same for wolf Hall in that I think uh, perhaps uh, you know that was a bit you know there was some sort of word of mouth still happening amongst readers and I was slower to build wasn't yeah it? and then Booker Prize win and then the second book comes out maybe by the second book there was some sort of sense of phenomena but then with an eight-year wait um it's kind of fantastic to have such a, a big book and an accomplished book and also have a book that had huge expectations riding on it and to have it meet those expectations and by doing so surpass them, is kind of a, a really amazing thing. Um, and yeah, having a book that you're reading and enjoying and being aware that you're enjoying it, I haven't had that for such a long time. Um, and she, like Mantel's so skilled in in and I think part of it perhaps is, she has talked about this, her use of the present tense, to insert some sort of sense of urgency into a story where we know where it's going. You know, there's no spoilers. We know that Thomas Cromwell is, is beheaded (laughs) at the tower of London and we know we're getting there, but the fact that she can make it compulsive to return to and see how she's going to take you there is just, like so so incredible
0: and Um, it's cut from the same cloth it's the same present tense narration it's the same very much being inside his head
1: yes exactly and you uh, constantly I think like part of part of the joy of it is that we are aware of Cromwell as a historical figure and how he's taught in education in schools and you know what we can infer from his character and you know he's the villain but when you are inside his head it's you absolutely understand his reasoning and it does feel very uh, unjust when he is uh, finally arrested and and, uh, put in in, in isolation and it's basically probably about the last 200 pages of this book um, is uh, him uh, answering Uh, two interrogators Um, and there's this beautiful sort of dialogue back and forth like really witty and cutting and uh, lots of backstabbing happening uh, between all these figures that have been popping up throughout all the books who are now basically trying to get Cromwell uh, out of the picture so they can sort of assume bits of his power um and uh, because there's
0: there's very much there's a focus on on his his trial such as it was and and his it's that's the balance of the book is it
1: yeah so it, it's set over the last four years of his life and then um there's this uh, i think it's like 48 days he spent in the tower of london and um uh it's just such beautiful writing in that you you are constantly reminded of uh moments from the previous books um moments in earlier in his life that we didn't know about um and i mean it's not a spoiler certainly but just uh in terms of how she writes the final seconds of his life on the last couple of pages um there's a beautiful use of the very first scene from the first book that comes back um and that that uh, that that amazing first line. So now get up, um, which was I loved that when they announced this book and there was that teaser billboard that was put in the middle of London and everyone lost their mind because <laughs> it it said nothing but it said so now get up and everyone immediately knew that we were going to find out when this book was coming out and to see that line come back uh, in the final moments inside his head, um, you know it's it's a really emotional and affecting affecting scene um, even though you know you know this was a real man and it it, i feel the emotional attachment to him like i would like a best loved character um a fictional character um so yeah it's it's a kind of a remarkable achievement and like i i have been constantly taking photos of pages this is what i do instead of underlining things in books i take photos of pages so i can remember passages and my phone is now filled of, of pictures of pages in this book um but just like, just as an example, if you haven't read Mantel, just small moments like this. When he was an infant, his sister Cat used to tell him the bells made the time. When the hour strikes and the music shivers in the air, you have the best of it. And what's left is like the sucked plumstone on on the side of a plate. Isn't that just beautiful? Yes. Like, oh, she's just so, so uh, wonderful. And this is from a moment when he's, uh, uh, when uh, Cromwell was in the tower. says, July and the nights are short. When the light begins to fade, he sends the boy out again to find his supper, while he thinks of heaven and hell. When he pictures hell, he can only think of a cold place, a wasteland, a wharf, a marsh, a landing stage, water distantly boiling, and then the boiling coming nearer. This is how it will be. Not pain itself, but the constant apprehension of pain, the constant apprehension of fault, the knowledge that you are going to be punished for something you couldn't help and didn't even know was wrong, and the discord in hell will be constant, repeating forever and ever, a violent argument being carried on in the next room. Isn't that beautiful?
0: Uh, and, and there's 900 pages of it. I, <laughs> I mean, know. what's it like having that kind of experience at like that kind of scale?
1: Well, you're right. Know, like yesterday, I, so I went and bought my book. This is how much I love it. I get sent <laughs> free books all the time, and I went and bought a book. Um, and uh, I went into the shop and uh, picked it up and realised I haven't held a book that big. And this is even including Duck's Newbury Port, which was a paperback and so it was kind of a bit more flexible. But I haven't held a book that big since I think the fifth Harry Potter book and it is actually kind of it's comparable that it's that chunky mm. um and so i yeah I, I i do understand like i i i'm very not uh i'm not wedded to e-readers or anything like that or print books either i'm i'm romantic about these things it's more about convenience um but actually the uh the physical book is a very beautiful thing and i'm quite glad that i have it and yeah you do need to break the spine <laughs>
0: <laughs> so do you think there's any kind of route any kind of opening any possibility of another one a sequel
1: no no this is it and she has actually said that she that uh, some people have asked her to write about elizabeth um and uh the, the sort of last of uh, everything but she's like no nah, not interested
0: Done. Finished. Yeah. She's but, but, arrived at the point where she set yeah. off from, and that's it. She's yeah,
1: and I think like she came into Wolf Hall and all of these books because she was interested in Cromwell as the man rather than the period or uh, you know the setting. It, it was she wanted to write about Cromwell, and she initially pictured it as one book, and then now it's become three massive books. Um, but uh, I, I think like that—that's actually a very good thing that that's her judgment is that you know when when you have such a a masterful portrait of a man's character like this you kind of go okay well if you don't find elizabeth interesting then you know let's wait and to see who you find else. interesting yeah, yeah. For sure.
0: and so i guess the other the fifty pound question is will it win the book oh it's
1: got to and i kind of feel bad for everyone that's long listed for the book of this year because they're just gonna be like oh great i'm off against that i mean it will be a real shock if it doesn't um but, that's it
0: she's got it in the bag
1: yeah i mean you know three for three
0: you know <laughs> unprecedented yeah and, and, and that's all for this week with that triumph to come next week we'll be returning to the 16th century with toby ferris who'll tell us about his pursuit of the dutch master peter Bruegel. we'd love to hear your thoughts about fantastical london or thomas cromwell on twitter at guardian books or on the podcast page and you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts but for now from me richard lee me and our producer esther opoku thanks for listening and goodbye